0: Welcome to Sellersburg United Methodist Church Podcast, where we bring our mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world to you, wherever you are. We come to this fourth week of our six-week series centered on discipleship as we focus our lives on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we know that a disciple is a witness to Jesus Christ in the world, and we follow his teaching in acts of compassion, justice, devotion, and worship, and we do this all under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We want to be disciples. We want to follow in the way of our teacher, of our Lord, of our Savior, and being a disciple means we invite other people into this life as well. We are disciples and we are disciple makers, which helps us live into the mission of the United Methodist Church, which is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And so our life as a disciple means that we are learning as we go, as we live and grow. live and grow and we learn more and in turn, this helps us grow deeper in the very action of the living itself. We are learning and inviting others to be a part of what we're experiencing in the life of discipleship. Now we don't have it all figured out. That's not the point of discipleship. The point of discipleship is learning that the way, the truth and the life is in Jesus. And so we commit ourselves into that way, knowing we don't have to have all the answers, but we will be led into the way in this life. We walk in life and grace through the Holy Spirit. And the grace is so necessary. We can lean upon that grace, even even when we know we're gonna make mistakes. And that part of learning and growing is is falling short and messing up and, and learning better ways as we go. And what a gift it is to have that grace. To know that we aren't trying to live a life of perfection right here in this moment, but we're being worked toward perfection, toward sanctification, being made into the life of holiness through the Holy Spirit. And we follow the teachings of Jesus as in our effort. We follow the teachings through our acts of compassion, of justice, of devotion, and worship. And living in this way is, is how not only we follow in the teachings, but we actually learn the teachings themselves. It's just a constant cycle. It's a revolving circle of of living it, learning it, which helps us live it, which helps us learn it. And it's a beautiful, meaningful, purpose-filled life. And this life of love and mercy and grace is true life it offers us fulfillment and satisfaction more than we could find in any other life it's eternal life with god right here and now in everything we do this week and next we're going to work through a passage that's going to help us understand this life of discipleship more and what it means and so we've been focusing on our oldest gospel the gospel of mark but before we dive into the scripture, I wanna tell a story of when I was younger, a teenager, and I'd gone to church my whole life, i have been baptized as an infant and, and grew up in the United Methodist Church and I, was, I heavily participated in many things, mainly because I was made to. My parents were the kind of people who joined committees and would show up for any service project. They helped with the youth group. They were a part of various mission projects and community projects with the church and so almost uh, two or three nights a week, I was at church because they were meeting somewhere, and so I was there. It became a familiar place for me it doesn 't mean the church was perfect; I certainly learned a lot of bad habits, and I certainly experienced a lot of people that that had rough edges and I developed rough edges myself. in fact, it was when I was a teenager through the church, the youth group went to something called ichthus now, I think there 's still an ichthus today, but it 's a little different than it was when I went and Basically 20,000 Christians, a lot of youth, and then, you know, adults and and parents who agreed to go and basically not sleep for the week, um, so that the youth could go and participate in this three-day-long concert of Christian artists and music. And I used to describe it as the Christian Woodstock. Mainly, if you looked at the pictures of the stage and lots of people, that's about as much as it resembled Woodstock, but we would go for three days and be a part of this huge, Community, which always kind of came to its apex in a communion service on the last night, twenty thousand people taking communion together. It was always very powerful, but I remember early on in my experience with ichthus, showing up, putting our tents together in a sea of thousands of tents and walking around with my friends and and kind of anticipating the same kind of atmosphere that I experienced at school and so you know, you kind of had to be in survival mode at different times when you were at school. It's a rough place. There are people there that are vying for power and popularity. And so they're happy to step on and point out your flaws and, and life hinges on style and, and being in the right trend or else you kind of get labeled. And then you have a reputation and it's tough. It's tough being in middle school and high school. And, and I kind of carried that toughness into the atmosphere at Ichthu. Suddenly there are thousands of youth, teenagers, peers that I didn't know. I didn't know what they thought of me and how they might judge me or, you know, if I needed to start judging them to kind of, you know, plant my feet in some sort of security. So I'd lived with this other way at school and it hadn't dawned on me that there might be a different way at Ichthus. But I remember clearly very early on walking to the concert field where there are thousands of people there and there were a group of people running and somebody fell and wiped out. And it was one of those, one of those wipeouts that, you know, you'd laugh at, you'd see, and just, it was unbelievable. I mean, they twisted and turned and legs and arms flying through the air. And my first instinct was to laugh. One, because it was funny and two, because wow, they made themselves look really silly and you know, as a teenager and, and even as an adult, we do this, if we're honest, we can point at the flaws of other people and somehow it, it makes us feel like we're in a better place. That was my instinct. That was the way that I was used to. And I felt so bad at the same time for this person. Glad it wasn't me, but just bad for them. But what I saw was people from all around, strangers, people they didn't know from all directions came and like got them up and brushed them off and asked if they were okay and gave them a drink of water and just loved on them. There was no one that laughed. There was no one that made them feel Lesser, everyone responded immediately with love. And I'd never seen that lived so clearly, so completely, so communally. That set the tone and the rest of the weekend was that. So much so that as I went back year after year after year, I began to crave the time that I could be in that atmosphere. So different from the atmosphere I experienced at school. I eventually worked at summer camps conference, United Methodist conference camps over the summer. And again, it was the same thing. It was this, this strange coming together of family members that didn't know they were family or didn't get to see each other, but they came together and instantly knew they were a family. And it was just a different world than the world outside of that. And it became very clear to me that we live into this new way if we choose to. And there are conflicting ways. And the Mark passage is going to kind of open this up a little bit. We're we're going to spend the two weeks going through Mark 1, verses 21 through 39. It's kind of one long scene, but broken up into two parts. So we're going to spend time on the first part. And the overall scene is just full of healings, which is pretty common in the gospel story. We're used to seeing healings. The first part, the one we'll focus on today, happens in a synagogue, this kind of corporate uh corporate setting. And then next week will happen more in a corporate kind of communal, but home setting, more private. So the we see the healings, but the message isn't really about the healings. Actually, the healings are about the message. And sometimes we, in our culture, we, we lose that distinguishing mark of the story because we don't see miracles in our day in the way that these stories describe But understanding how the story was written and what the healings are being used to uplift will help us understand the message all the more. So today we'll focus on this first scene. When we read the passage, it's going to be very easy to kind of put your focus on the wrong thing. What I mean by that is we're going to have an exorcism, All right an exorcism, a demon, uh, an evil spirit, an unclean spirit confronts Jesus and they have a conversation and then Jesus exorcises that demon. And that might be where our focus goes because frankly, that's unlike anything we've ever experienced. And all we know about those kinds of words probably uh, scares us a bit. But if we really read the passage, we find that it's not about the exorcism. The exorcism is about something else. The healing is about something else. And so we're gonna hear the passage that's actually about Jesus' teaching and more so about the authority of Jesus about that teaching. And then we're gonna work through how this message confronts us today. So we'll consider the question of the unclean spirit because it is a question for all of us in light of the authority and teachings of Jesus. So let us read. From Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Jesus and his followers went into Capernaum. Immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and started teaching. The people were amazed by his teaching, for he was teaching them with authority, not like the legal experts. Suddenly, there in the synagogue, a person with an evil spirit screamed. "'What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? "'Have you come to destroy us? "'I know who you are. "'You are the Holy One from God.' "'Silence,' Jesus said, speaking harshly to the demon. "'Come out of him!' "'The unclean spirit shook him and screamed, "'and then it came out. "'Everyone was shaken and questioned among themselves. "'What's this? "'A new teaching with authority?' He even commands unclean spirits and they obey him. Right away, the news about him spread throughout the entire region of Galilee. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So Jesus goes into the synagogue on Sabbath because that's what you do when you're a good Jew. You go to synagogue. It's it's similar to church. They come together. They'll be together. They'll sing and they'll read from the scripture and then talk about it. They'll have conversation and engage. And if there's a holy person in the area, then they want that person to come in and teach because it brings in a a new perspective and a new way for them to start to discuss scripture that they've surely read before or heard read before. And so Jesus comes in and teaches, but not like the people that they're used to hearing from. Usually they have a scribe who is an expert in the Torah or an expert in the law, or we call them lawyers, see that in scripture. But they come in, they are experts. They not only know the law, but they know the kind of teachings and conversations that have been had across time in the past. And so they'll bring some of those teachings and comments forward and present them to the people to be a part of their own conversation. Jesus doesn't teach like that. Jesus seems to come in, read, And then offers something brand new of his own word as if it is the word. Now we know that's exactly what it is. And we have no problem with this. And we we were told right at the beginning of the gospel who Jesus is. But the people, the characters in the story, they don't know this yet. And so they aren't expecting this kind of behavior from Jesus. And when he teaches in this way, they're kind of, well, they're amazed. They're amazed at the authority which he speaks with. Not the authority of the past, but the authority of himself. And that catches them off guard. And we don't know exactly what he taught. It doesn't say in the story. So we have to assume, we should assume, that a few verses prior when he offered the teaching, his gospel, that that's what he came in there and taught. And so we'll hear it again from a few verses back. Now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. People are hearing this message and they're hearing it with authority and they're responding with amazement. But then there's another response. It says an evil spirit speaks up in a person and says, what have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come here to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy one of God. What great questions. What perfectly appropriate questions for that unclean, evil spirit. What have you to do with us? Now, if Jesus is bringing the kingdom into their presence, into the world, the kingdom of God has now torn apart the heavens and entered and is working through him. This has consequences for other kingdoms, for evil, The presence of other kingdoms is disrupted by the presence of God's kingdom. These other ways of life, these other allegiances, these other motivations that people live by and live for, these other ambitions, we might use the word evil, we might say impure, we might say unclean, but whatever it is, these other kingdoms, they are threatened by the presence of God's kingdom because the power of God is ultimate. It is unmatched. If God's kingdom is present, then every other kingdom is vulnerable. Even the most corrupt power who thinks they're invincible tends to change their tune when a more powerful presence enters the room. We've seen this. Plenty of people talk the talk, right? Until someone more powerful comes and suddenly it changes for that person if they're wise enough to know that they're no longer the most powerful person in the room. If the kingdom of God is present in and through Jesus Christ, then the other kingdom has been put on notice. So the natural question would be, of course, so what's this mean? What have you to do with us? What happens next, Jesus? You're here. You represent absolute power and authority. So what are you going to do with us? Because we can't exist if you're here. Have you come to destroy us? And they say, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Now, this particular term is is special. Only three people in the scripture have been given this title prior to Jesus. There's Aaron, the priest, Moses' brother, way back in Exodus. Then there's Samson, the corrupt and, and problematic judge from Judges, but he's an incredibly powerful warrior. And then there's Elisha. Elisha, one of the most powerful prophets of the Old Testament. They were given the title, the Holy One of God and Scripture, and now we find that this evil spirit is assigning that same title to Jesus, recognizing him for who he is. They know exactly who he is, and it scares them to death, literally. So Jesus shuts down the conversation, immediately expels the spirit, and that's the end of it. We're early in the story. We haven't even left the first chapter yet, so the story's not ready to reveal more than that scene reveals. It reveals quite a lot. But the response to this whole interaction by all the people that are present in the story is strange. It's not what we'd expect. It's certainly not how we would react. I mean, if we witnessed that in our church on a Sunday morning, we would be talking about the evil spirit, right? I mean, we'd be, that would be our sole focus. But in the story, the people's response is this. What's this? a new teaching with authority. He even commands unclean spirits and they obey him. Apparently the presence of the unclean spirit is not the focus at all. It's the authority of Jesus and his teaching, the authority, the power, the presence. So news started to spread throughout the entire northern region of Israel about what was happening in and through Jesus. And I wonder what... What did they say to people when they spread this news? And when you're hearing this news, if you're walking down the street and someone comes up and says, Guess what? What's your response? So I wonder what, what is our response to this good news? What's our reactions? As Christians, when we gather, I mean, we've been raised to understand that we rejoice with this good news. We praise, we celebrate the in-breaking kingdom of God coming to be with us as a sign of joy and hope for all. It sustains us, it drives us. We worship and celebrate because the presence of the kingdom on the move in and around us is exhilarating, exciting, and, and is amazing. But if we're paying attention, there is another side to this good news. Now we are still part of other kingdoms. As much as we're a part of the kingdom of God, we are still a part of other kingdoms. We use language to personify what these other kingdoms are. We might just refer to it as the other kingdom. There's God's and then there's the other kingdom. We might say unclean and pure or evil, like we find in the scripture. We may say Satan or devil or mammon, also things we find in scripture. No matter what word we use for the other kingdom we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about something other than God's kingdom, something opposed, something different, another way. It's a different life than being a disciple of Jesus Christ to participate in this other kingdom. It's a different spirit than the Holy Spirit when we participate. And if we're honest, we're we're doing both. We're doing both. We're still part of this other way. We're being made holy, sanctified, perfected, healed, saved, regenerated, transformed, remade. Yes, we are into the way of Jesus Christ through a life of discipleship, through the Holy Spirit. But we have not arrived there yet. The Holy Spirit still has work to do in my heart and in yours too, I assume. This is why we focus on forgiveness and mercy, on this great love of God shown in these ways, in the grace of Jesus Christ, because we are still resisting giving our total lives over. We are still a work in progress. On our good days and in the right place, the right atmosphere, we can live it better. Being a church is such an amazing refuge, a sanctuary from the pressures in the world, and in us. And it's taken its toll that we have not been able to to be together, all of us, for almost a year now. If your atmosphere, you know, if your friends affect you and your atmosphere affects you, then we need the church, right? We need to worship together. We need to share in our devotion because it helps us stay focused on the life that we know is the one to live and even when we're at our best there are still parts of us and parts of our lives where we struggle we give in to temptation or we at least struggle with temptation our hearts are still in need of the spirit's work and we could label the remnants of this other kingdom in us in lots of different ways And we've come up with a lot of words. We hear them talked about all the time. We could talk about a vice, right? A vice, that indulgence in your life that you somehow convince yourself you have control over, but if you're honest, it has more control over you than you over it. There are lots of vices. Labeling one worse than another accomplishes nothing. We all struggle. We struggle with pride it becomes very natural for human beings to categorize each other, to categorize ourselves. And it's always, always, always in an effort to place ourselves above someone else, to think that we're better, that we deserve more. And that's where racism comes from. That's where chauvinism comes from. That's where xenophobia comes from. That's where homophobia comes from this effort to feed into our pride. Those are remnants. Other remnants are greed and avarice. Wow, mammon is a powerful adversary. It's a powerful other way that's at work in our culture, in our lives, if we admit it. We're so fearful of being without the security of our stuff and our wealth that we give the better part of our health and time our money and our stuff and our status through it. We could name more. Lust. Nationalism. Partisanship. Can I get an amen? Gluttony. Carelessness. Wow. We could, we could keep going. I have a feeling you're starting to understand what the word is in your life we're all still giving parts of our hearts and lives to another kingdom. The presence of God's kingdom in and through Jesus Christ confronts us in that fact. We don't wanna give everything up, do we? I mean, everything, if we did, we would. So there's something in us. The presence of this other kingdom, this power and authority of another kingdom even works against ourselves or talks us into working against ourselves And we work hard in this effort to rationalize ourselves, don't we? We want to convince ourselves that it's okay to have mammon. It's okay to support entire systems which seem to devalue entire groups of people based on some of these categories. In fact, when those people cry out that this system is not valuing their lives, we even work to rationalize why we shouldn't listen why we shouldn't understand, why we should silence them, tell them to go away, be quiet, get back to work, just shut up and play, these kinds of things are said. The truth is, friends, even when we don't understand what they're talking about, when we don't understand, there are opportunities to listen, to try and understand, to have compassion, and for the sake of mercy, to extend our ear, to learn, to grow, to read, We have a God who hears the cry of the needy, and and that's what we're called to do too. So even trying to convince ourselves that we don't have to listen is a remnant of another kingdom at work in our life, an allegiance to it as well. And we, we can even see that continued work with that other kingdom because what we do is we demonize and accuse other groups of people when what they have to say disrupts our privilege and comfort. If we're honest, we all do it. And I struggle as much as anyone else to be honest with myself about where I'm at in my struggle. But if we fully open our hearts, our eyes, our minds to the authority of Jesus and the kingdom of God in this confrontation, then, of course, we're asking the same question. What have you to do with us? What have you to do with that in my life? Do I have to give up my devotion to all other kingdoms? I mean, can't I just have this one other kingdom, Lord? Can't I just worship my money a little bit? Can't I just maintain my pride and status and privilege? Can't I I just allow myself to indulge in a small way? I mean, at least it's not like these big ways, Lord. Come on, it's just a small way. At least I'm not like other people, Lord. Have you really come to destroy this unclean part of my life too? What have you to do with us? This is why we live a life of discipleship. Why we come together, why we worship, why we devote ourselves, and we live a life of acts of compassion and justice. Because through this, we learn the ways of Jesus Christ. And it heals us. And through us, it heals the world around us. By practicing and living into a life fully allegiant to God's kingdom in and through Jesus Christ, we start to become whole in ways we could have never imagined. The truth is, the good news is that Jesus Christ revives our hearts and souls when we choose a life of discipleship. And we are in need of revival. Amen? We were born with a very precious innocence and Through hardship and through the corruption of the world, we have learned other ways. Jesus Christ revives us and brings us back to life. And then we receive that invitation while also extending it to others that they may be revived as well. We live by entering into community of faith together. We enter into eternal life by experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit in everything we say and do. Everything we say and do. And we come to know the truth about ourselves, about the other kingdoms, and about the kingdom of God. Living this life of discipleship. And it happens when we do it with each other and in the world around us. And that's our task, friends. To keep going and to keep Growing, Allow the presence of God's kingdom to amaze and shake up your life. Allow the leading of the spirit that you may say yes to Jesus Christ and to his authority, that he be your only authority. And through that, the spirit will lead you into healing, into purification, into sanctification, into salvation right here and now, As you begin a life of growing and discipleship, be a witness to the world around you. And this is important. We want this healing and salvation in our hearts, but be a witness to the world around you. Confront the other kingdoms as Jesus did. With love and grace and compassion, stand up with the authority of Jesus Christ and the kingdom Of God, Show the world what healing looks like in your own life and then speak to that healing to those around you. Invite others into it that they may receive the saving grace, that they may be cleansed through the life of discipleship along with us, along with the church, because we are the body. It's in and through us that we experience all these things and it's a miracle and it's wonderful and it's hard and it confronts us, but it is the only way. And if we say yes and live into this life of discipleship and if we share that, we are going to experience the transformation of the world. What have you to do with us, Jesus? Everything. So let us be cleansed and let us live. Amen. We thank you for worshiping with us. And it is our hope that through the Holy Spirit you have felt the touch of God upon your life. If you would like to know more about our church and its ministries, please visit our website at sellersburgumc.com.